home is so sad. It stays as it was left, shaped to the comfort of the last to go, as if to win them back. Instead, bereft of anyone to please, it withers so. Having no heart to put aside the theft and turn again to what it started as. A joyous shot at how things ought to be, long fallen wide. You can see how it was. Look at the pictures and the cutlery, the music in the piano stool, that vase. This is a poem, Home is So Sad, by Philip Larkin. I'm Caroline, and this poem is one that I've been thinking about throughout this season on Haunted Houses. And I'm Carly. Welcome to the recap episode of the Book Club Podcast, where we discuss what happened this season as we talked about haunted house novels. And I think to dive right into it, Carly, we should ask, what does it mean to be haunted? Yeah, I think what was very often the sort of dynamic that I saw in in most of our books was being haunted was like being infected. We had characters who were susceptible to hauntings in a way like so it was sort of a, a chemistry between the character and their state of mind when they go to the house and then the house being sort of like an infection that benefits from a vulnerability. Yeah, that was the most frequent image that came to mind. Interesting. Yeah, I I agree that our characters seem to have certain vulnerabilities that the house picked up on, you know, and for Eleanor in Haunting of Hill House, it was her loneliness. For Jack in The Shining, it was his arrogance and desire for fame. But the things which caused them to be vulnerable were such ordinary human things like grief, (laughs) arrogance, loneliness, right? Uh, I don't know if there was something particularly vulnerable about these characters necessarily. Yeah, I mean, they were vulnerable in those moments, right? Like we all go through struggles and there are periods where we are handling them well and there are periods when we're not handling them well and I think one of the tragic things about most of our characters especially Jack in The Shining is that if he hadn't been in that place in that hotel he might have made it right it's just deeply sad (laughs) that he was in the wrong place you know like he was he thought he was in a place where he could heal and recover his life and that's not what happened so I mean same for Eleanor Right. I mean, I think we talked a lot this whole season about non-horror novel things that are still horrifying, right? And that are actually the basis, the underlying motor of what's horrifying. There were several examples, but one for me was deep time. I just find that to be frightening uh, in a way that has nothing to do with horror novels. In Turn of the Screw, the idea of being dependent on a child for everything you want in life. Or in Hill House, that our loneliness can drive people away and make us lonelier. Or in The Shining, that the wrong desire, even if not acted upon, can condemn us in a certain way. Similarly, the evil that we are capable of, even as we think of ourselves as good, normal people. And that came through in The Shining and Turn of the Screw. So there's sort of this underlying layer of what it means to be haunted or that gives rise to haunting, that's the really scary stuff, right? (laughs) Not the stuff that's blood on the walls, but the stuff that's about how we navigate being, you know, mortal humans in 
this world. Right. And to add to that, the idea of being of a small human particle bouncing around in a vast universe that doesn't care anything about your own well-being. Like, I think that was House of Leaves and (laughs) yes, and uh, and definitely House on the Borderland. I think Abigail Lane was gave us a lot of examples of like people bringing their own baggage and that sort of amplifying their experience in Abigail Lane. You know, we had the one character who had an open-minded wanted to explore and she had I mean as best we could tell she had a positive experience she spent decades lost somewhere and she came back and seemed to be different but not traumatized and then you had people who did have trauma like the veteran who was dealing with PTSD and that was a horrible experience so like I don't know is there a difference between being haunted or being being vulnerable and bringing baggage with you like not to say that it's possible to not have baggage, right? Like even the child <laughs> in Abigail Lane, an eight-year-old boy, had baggage. Like he was bringing in this right. antisocialness with him. Well, you said just a moment ago that Jack in The Shining, he was in a place where he couldn't get what he needed. I mean, literally a place, the hotel, where he could not get the lifestyle that was good for his continued sobriety. So there's this intersection between the person's vulnerabilities and a unique place. You know, obviously it's a malevolent one in most of these, right? Because we're talking about haunted house novels. But I think that's also part of the tragedy. You know, maybe if Jack had been elsewhere, you know, he would still be alive and they'd have a happy family, right? It's the sort of this idea that <laughs> circumstances can have a huge and negative effect. So I think that poem that you read at the beginning, there's a line, how things ought to be. So I wonder if part of a haunted house is that we are also bringing expectations of what the house is supposed to be for us. And that's definitely true of all our characters. <laughs> yes, I'm I'm glad you brought out, you also noticed that line, because that's my favorite line where he describes a home as a joyous shot at how things ought to be. And then the next phrase is long fallen wide, right? Uh, And it ends with this list of look at the pictures and the cutlery, the music and the piano stool, that vase. And I love this poem because, first of all, we can all see that, right? And second, that's what a house and a home is, I think, an attempt to embody some sort of dream in in your physical surroundings. And then a haunted house is how it goes wrong. I was trying to think if there are animals that pick a place and stay there for a long period of time. Like I know different animals have territory and we could think of bees and ants building nests and hives, but, but it's always seasonal, right? Like I can't, is there any creature that you can think of? Well, I don't think it's always seasonal. Uh, Beavers, don't they spend their whole lifetime on their dams and their you know, practically whole whole beaver civilizations <laughs> uh, live and die building a dam. So that's that's different. And then I think even the animals that have territories, I think they have it, it maybe a large territory, but if undisturbed, I think maybe it could be their territory for life. So I think there are examples. Yeah, I don't know if that's useful. A useful train of thought. It's just something that it feels very unique the way that we pick a place and surround ourselves with creature comforts you know like 
and how it does it does feel like it gets to something primal when it gets really cold like it is now in my house like being in my house knowing that my heater is working and that I have the dogs with me and like all of my things all of my books in in my little home you know <laughs> the most important one yeah exactly <laughs> yeah I, there's something it it's really deeply embedded in me that this there's a rightness to that feeling i agree i mean i feel the same way but because of that there's also expectation expectations cannot be met things can go awry right that same energy and intensity that you bring to that feeling can also be brought to any of the ways in it, which it can go poorly, <laughs> right? Yeah, I wonder how delusional I am about my house too because, I mean, I know my house is not the prettiest place, but because it's mine, there's something valuable about it. Like even though there, are, I look around and I see all the things I want to change, if someone else came in here and criticized it, I'd be like, get out of here. This is my house. You know what I mean? <laughs> if, you know, in a, if they, they didn't speak to me in the right, like approach about the things that need to change in the house. You know what I mean? Like right. I'm reflective over it. Are you wondering if your house has the capability to become haunted? No, but that always reminds me of a tweet I saw when I had like just moved in a few months and it took a while. Like I had to have a bunch of work done to make, make it livable, but I was still living here. And I uh, <laughs> saw a tweet that was like, whenever I hear a noise, I hope it's a ghost because I can't afford any repairs. And I was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy to have a ghost as long as it doesn't cause any damage that may cost me money. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Do we move on to our next question? Yes. And that is about the order in which we discuss these books. So... Was there any particular ordering or pairing that you thought worked really well in the way we did it? I, I'm glad we started with 99 Fear Street because it was a fun start to the haunted house, but and it it wasn't that it wasn't that deep. <laughs> <laughs> On a similar note, I'm glad we ended with House of Leaves <laughs> um, because that was heavy. And it did such a good job of presenting all the possible explanations. Mm -hmm. or many of the possible explanations for haunted houses that oddly I feel like it would have taken a lot of the joy out if we had read it first, hmm. right? Because it, it covered that ground so well in some ways. I'm even glad that we read House on Abigail Lane before House of Leaves, even though I think House on Abigail Lane is very much meant to be an homage or in a similar style to House of Leaves. Mm -hmm. But House of Leaves was just... Too mammoth. Nothing can follow it, I think. Yeah, and then having Hill House early in the season was good too because it's so well-renowned and I think it, it's so influential in the genre. And so having that as a foundation and seeing how the following authors either borrowed from it or diverged completely, I liked having that as like a, a touchstone. Yep, same with The Shining, right? I yeah. guess that was our fourth one, so it wasn't, you know, wasn't first, but that's another well-known one that we do keep going back to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anything about the order that you'd have liked to change or might have brought something different? I don't think so. I, occasionally, I I think you were telling me the other day that you came across a haunted house novel that we could have included. And there's always 
occasionally you find some of those, right? But I no, I'm I'm happy with the order in which we did it. I think it was a really good idea to do goosebumps first, and that was your idea. Yeah. So any favorite new ideas that came out of the season in our discussions? Sure. For me, it's kind of funny how often this is true, but the book I enjoyed reading the least gave me the best discussion and gave me the most to think about. And for me, that was House on Abigail Lane. I shouldn't say I didn't enjoy reading it. It was like a thriller, very enjoyable to read. But I went into our discussion without particularly high hopes. And then I think we really pulled some interesting things out of it when we started talking about not just collaborative horror, but this idea that the haunted house genre depends on an isolated private home. And maybe we just don't have that anymore in the age of social media and endless internet connectivity. Maybe it's a kind of quaint idea now that a house could be so isolated that it is just a dialogue between the house and the occupants, as opposed to a dialogue between the house, the occupants, and the entire public. Yeah. It's interesting you say that you enjoyed reading it the least, but got the most out of the discussion. I think for me, it was House on the Borderlands was the hardest for me to just like sit down and read, but I keep thinking about it. <laughs> like I just keep remembering it. And in, and in a plot, like I, our discussion was really great. Uh, for me, just to like think back on and what do you keep thinking about? What do you return to? There's something very beautiful about it, how it was written, like how my theory is that these different worlds collided and the recluse uh, being caught in that. I don't There's It's just something beautiful. Like I just think about how the book was put together and how weird that was for me trying to read it. But then afterwards, just I enjoy the weirdness of it. I enjoy that it yeah. doesn't fit like a puzzle piece. It's wacky. I think back <laughs> with such fondness on those many lengthy chapters describing his wanderings throughout the solar system. I mean, there's his visions. There's no other way to describe it. But they're really beautiful and affecting. And that is definitely on the list of works of art that left a huge impression, even though when I was reading it, I didn't necessarily enjoy it or appreciate it to that degree when I was reading. Yeah. Uh, I want to add an idea that came out of it for me. So I wanted to read The Haunting of Hill House because I had heard such great things about it. And there was that amazing TV show adaptation that has a very little story in common, but but the TV adaptation does a really great job of telling two stories at once where you could believe that anything that people are attributing to supernatural or ghosts is really just uh, mental illness or trauma. And I guess using the ghost story to tell a very emotional story about family and relationships and trauma and, and all of that. So I was expecting that from most of our books and I was expecting that from like ghost, ghosty stories. <laughs> and the, it, it seems like the stories that didn't have re like ghosts, like house of leaves and borderland that the, just widening the idea of like what can be psychological horror, like house of leaves that it's just black labyrinth. And sometimes it's not even, 
it doesn't even have floors or walls to like connect to. And that can also be a representation of a psychological state of our character. It's just really cool that that's like possible in literature, I guess. Um, something you said earlier about deep time in the borderland house on the borderland was sort of about deep time but i think house of leaves was about deep space right (laughs) space so deep and so infinite that humans just get lost in it i think those books were parallel in a certain way yeah and you we were mentioning you know there's a chemistry between a person in the house and your place has so much effect on your health and happiness and house of leaves that gets stripped away from will every everything gets stripped away and it makes me think of those um you can do like sensory deprivation tubs and people find that therapeutic and it makes me wonder about that like i mean i don't i don't i don't believe in a human existing independent from from environment right like we are creatures who exist in the world in social order. And I don't believe that that's that trying to strip that away gets to any reality about the human. I think it's just stripping away what is essential to being human. So that that's another conversation, but, (laughs) but I like, (laughs) I like the house of leaves. I am, I am still thinking about that. Like, like will being stripped of, of even gravity and, and needing in some sense, needing, needing that experience to be able to then embrace a life with Karen and his kids. And something calls him back. Even as much as is stripped away, he still finds a way home. Maybe it's a desire for independence and like the danger of actually being independent. (laughs) (laughs) Like like independent from physics even. Yeah. I mean, that's closely related to the joys and dangers of solitude, right? Right. Yes. I do think one sort of theme I've seen in maybe not even haunted house stories, but just how Americans relate to their houses (laughs) that we didn't see in these stories is the house as sort of frontier outpost that's defended against intruders and home invaders. I think I have seen that more in movies, like there's home invasion movies. And there was a little bit of that in House on the Borderland. But I think that's a real through thread in how some people relate to their houses, me included at times, definitely was not particularly represented in these books. I guess there that's more haunted world. House is castle (laughs) sort of trope. It's not the house is haunted, I guess. Some things you said earlier makes me ask, did you think that more of the stories would deal with trying to define whether or not the phenomena was occurring you know, sort of a skeptic versus believer dynamic. Yeah. And probably that comes from movies more uh, that, that, and I, I wonder if that's, well, maybe we can talk about medium, medium and context and medium is message sort of idea that maybe that, that trope of having the skeptic or having to prove that these things are really happening is, is better suited to visual media for some reason, because if you're not in the character's head the way you are in a book, that creates more of a tension. I mean, I could see it working in a in a book like in the yellow wallpaper. We get a firsthand account. We're not 100 percent sure that our narrator is fully aware of everything that's happening, you know, she, or if she's right. delusional. I mean, we definitely I do think that she was 
delusional as far as seeing a creeping woman in the wallpaper, but as far as the other <laughs> stuff going on, like, so we're in her head, but we don't, we don't know what's real. Wait a minute. Do we, or do we, do we know what's real in that yellow wallpaper story? I, I don't know necessarily for that story, but I, I think part of what makes a haunted house novel, a haunted house novel is that you are in the internal mind space <laughs> of a person and that is somehow overlaid on or reflective of or interacting with the physical space of the house, right? Like you have two interiorities colliding and feeding off of each other. And that's all very subjective and not the less real. I mean, to me, that's not real versus unreal or even really subjective versus objective. They're they're dueling subjectivities or something like that. But as you said, I think that's very specific to the novel format where you can be in a character's head. Well, I guess you saw the Haunting of Hill House movie and TV show. Was it obvious that Eleanor was a lonely weirdo? Um, in in the movie, and this movie gets a bad rap, the 1990-something version of Haunting of Hill House. And I remember Catherine Zeta-Jones plays Theo. And when I was reading the book, I was like, yeah, that was great casting. Like, Catherine Zeta-Jones is definitely Theo. Um, and then the actress who plays Eleanor, whose name I can't remember, was fantastic as Eleanor. But Eleanor was a different kind of character. And she was very weird. And I guess I phrased it wrong because you can indicate that someone is weird. But can you indicate loneliness from the outside? That seems harder. Well, that movie and spoilers for that movie, which most people say you shouldn't watch, but I say, whatever, it's on a Saturday afternoon, watch it. <laughs> but um, in that movie- <laughs> A rousing <there> was, endorsement. <laughs> right. There are some creepy images in that movie, like especially with like faces carved into a wooden bedspread, bed, bed frame. So Eleanor in the movie has a tie. Like she is, they, they find some relation to the companion who inherited the house. And so that Eleanor come home, come home, Eleanor is about her connecting with long lost family. So I think there oh. is a loneliness component to it, but they had to convey it differently in the movie or they felt they had to convey it differently in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. That does seem different. Uh, it's a different sort of se searching for connection, I would think. Yeah. And it does that Hill House in that movie does not walk alone. Like there's many spirits there and Eleanor joins them. So. Oh, okay. Interesting. I think which may be a violation of like everything that's great about the book Hill House, right? <laughs> <laughs> Funny how sometimes that works. Right. I've seen the movie The Shining, you know, as many people have, and it's an incredible movie. Like, I, I don't disagree with that, but it is not so much the study of a man who is human and haunted by forces beyond his control. It does to me, it is not as much a human tragedy. It is visually striking, aesthetic, overpowering, all sorts of things that make it excellent. But I I do not think it is the same characters at all. Uh, so yeah, sometimes there's just a difference in what you can do with the context. We talked a bit about, you know, podcasts that I listen to where, you know, especially during like Halloween season, we would, I would hear a lot of podcasts of people calling in and talking about personal accounts of ghost stories and having that audio that seemed extremely realistic. That medium breaks down through all of my defenses of like, this is fiction. This can't be real. <laughs> I don't believe in ghosts, you know, and it, 
I look for that feeling that like I loved reading many of these books, but very rarely felt that uneasiness of, of fear in these books. And so they didn't feel like horror to me. And, and the only ones that did were The Shining and maybe 99 Fear Street. Those are books I read when I was a kid. So I feel like it's like residual reaction to that. But those podcasts where I just heard a normal person talking about how they went into a mine and heard, heard the ghosts of formerly abused and imprisoned people crying out to them, I was like terrified. <laughs> like That was freaking scary. <laughs> you know, and then the TV show, The Haunting of Hill House, which was brilliant, 10 episodes, story is very different from the book. I remember watching it and I have a rule that I can't read or watch horror when it gets dark outside. I had to break my rule because I was so sucked into to that TV show. And it wasn't until after I finished watching it that I learned that there were ghosts in the background of many scenes. And I could feel that, like I knew something was wrong, but I didn't spot the ghost until I went online to see what people were saying about it and pointing it out. Yeah. And so that got to me in a way that these books did not. It's interesting. You know, we talked about this when we talked about what we, I think we kind of called it Reddit horror, but you know, when you read a 1200 word or, you know, a couple paragraphs from someone who's just a normal person. They said, you know, I went to this house once with my real estate agent. It was, you know, we went in and nobody had been there in years and there were, you know, creepy graffiti and dolls heads on spikes or, you know, whatever the creepy story is. There's plenty of those out there and I've certainly spent hours and hours reading them. And those do scare me maybe more definitely in a very different way. And I think some of it is because they're so unpolished, right? <laughs> they have they seem very real cuz yeah, this is just some normal person. Why would they make this up? They're not an author, right? Yeah. Yeah, cuz we get at these stories and we're like, what is the author trying to tell us with this story? But if it, the only thing they could possibly be trying to tell us is that they experienced something really weird, we can get that elsewhere. <laughs> right. Yeah. Huh. Are some places special independent of the humans who move through the spaces? If a tree falls in a forest, does anyone hear it? <laughs> um, or does it make a sound is the is the, is the term, right? If a tree falls right. in the forest and there's no one around, does it make a sound? Is the house haunted if no one is living in it? I, I mean, I think we've seen that idea in so, some of the stories that some of these places are uniquely haunted or evil. We got a little bit of that in House of Lees with the explanation that it's this creepy place in Virginia where the Roanoke colony disappeared. You know, there's a little bit of that, I think, in The Shining, this implication that this place was uniquely, unusually evil. But it needed Danny. That's true. Yeah. And House of Leaves needed or responded the most to Will. I don't think this question is quite the same as if a tree falls in the forest and nobody hears it, does it make a sound? To me, this question, are some places special, is more about are there unique geographies? Like, I don't know if you find this, but the, it seems now and now like every place is the same as every other place. <laughs> I feel that way more and more. You know, things are decorated the same. Everything seems to have similar levels of accessibility. You know, maybe you could say it's because social media, they're all looking more and more the same. I don't know. But this idea seems in contrast to that, that there are some places that are irreplicable and unique. And I don't know if I honestly believe that. I mean, sure, it's true in these stories, but do I really think that? 
I mean, I just did a lot of driving between Texas and New Mexico. And today my drive through New Mexico, New Mexico is called the land of enchantment. And today I drove through a part of very rural New Mexico that felt enchanted. Like there was fog and all of the grass and grub were covered in frost. And there were long periods where I didn't see any other cars. I was like, this is why it's called land of enchantment. Also, the houses are different here. The food is slightly different. I mean, between Austin and Santa Fe, pretty similar cities, I think. Like there's a similar style of food. There's a similar pace almost. Austin, I mean, although Austin is, is a lot bigger city, but compared to like other parts of the world, You know, it's they're pretty similar, but there is a distinct difference. I feel different in different places. So when you say different places, like I cannot separate that from a person being in the place. I I don't I can't separate that. Uh, Are you seeing them any separation there? Yes. You know, there's not a history of this in what I would consider to be my own tradition. But there are plenty of traditions where certain places are sacred, not because people feel certain things when they stand there or it's the best place to prefer certain rites or anything like that, though that may also be true, but they are just, they are fundamentally sacred. I don't, you know, I I don't come from a tradition that particularly holds that view. I don't think I've never really been taught it, but I do think it is a very powerful and wonderful idea. And I would maybe like to think that, but I'm not sure that's something you can just, like many things say, I'd like to believe that. And then you do through and through. So when we were talking about Abigail Lane, or no, wait, was it yellow wallpaper? It must have been yellow wallpaper where you're talking about how the patterns of the wallpaper felt or like the fixation that she had on it felt similar to the way we can sometimes be absorbed in social media. The phrase that came to mind was, oh, that hits me where I live. And then I was (laughs) like, wait, that's, that's a phrase about being hit where you live, being hit in your home is somehow more dramatic or damaging than being hit <laughs> than being hit elsewhere. <laughs> being hit elsewhere. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting that that's, that concept is, is in our language, you know. Home is a special place where you're maybe uniquely vulnerable or open. Right. Yes. Yeah. So I thought that was funny. <laughs> multiple levels. So one thing we didn't see in these stories was the trope of someone disrupting a room or or a trinket that belonged to someone who lived there and then that sort of being a catalyst for the haunting. I think the only catalyst we saw was Danny and the shining uh being the catalyst yes. for the for the hotel. Or maybe Eleanor in Haunting of Hill House. She also seemed somewhat like a catalyst. Yeah, I thought she was just like the first prey, right? Like if Eleanor was taken and the people had stayed in the house, then the house would have pursued the other folks in order. Yeah, that's fair enough. Like a lion hunting the weak antelope or something. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. I think it did have that feel. But yeah, no, I mean, I wonder if that's another movie that has to be like a visual medium that a character stumbles into a room and is like, what's this locket or what's this journal or, <laughs> you know, like, does, is that a way of, of framing the story in Borderland and in House of Leaves? We have characters who stumble across a manuscript 
and then we get to hear the story in the manuscript. But I guess a movie would not be that exciting if you had someone just sitting and reading a manuscript. Well, that's The Princess Bride, right? It's Right? Oh. Doesn't that have a frame story like that? That's true. And The Princess Bride is awesome. So, <laughs> Yeah, I was actually going to ask about the frame stories because several of these stories had frame stories. You know, in Turn of the Screw, they're sitting down on Christmas Eve to tell their ghost story. I think House on the Borderland, they find the manuscript. And then House on Abigail Lane and House of Leaves are kind of nothing but framing story. They're like nested <laughs> framing stories or something. Yeah. That's a common device here. Do you think that makes it more or less scary? Well, I think it's related to the time period in which these books are written. So like Borderland and Turn of the Screw are written sort of close together. And I think it has to do with the style of novel writing. So Wuthering Heights was my first encounter with like this framing story. And it was really bizarre because Wuthering Heights has like a young dude who's checking out the area and then he meets a housekeeper and then and then the housekeeper becomes the narrator. And I was like, what's going Like, who are all these people talking about other things? Like, where's the story here? And that was very confusing. <laughs> so I think it was just, it was a style thing in the 19th century to, I, I think it all gets back to trying to make it feel more real for the reader that like, I, as the author, am not making this up. I heard it from someone who heard it from someone who heard it from someone. <laughs> That's how right. stories get passed around. I agree. I think it, it gives it a little sheen of reality. Um, and it's also kind of the opposite of trying to prove that it's real in a scientific way. Because by the time you've said, yeah, this came from like my cousin's nephew's college roommate, like you can't track that down, right? Right. <laughs> like there's no proving the story anymore. And maybe in some ways uh, that makes it more feel more real. Yeah, but and then House of Leaves has the opposite where everything is verified well like with all the footnotes and the research and everything is verified and everything is analyzed and i think it does the same thing but it's in a different period of time where we're satisfying to us i think that we need and and abigail lane is the same the house of leaves and abigail lane are written in a way that it's it starts out as a scientific exploration whatever that means <laughs> you know like it's <laughs> right like, no, we saw the video of this or that we have a record of this or someone who was there said this on this day to this person is real. Did it have that effect on you? It did not. But I would like <laughs> I would like to read. Well, it, maybe not consciously. So I found this quote on Reddit about House of Leaves from user Hey Girl, It's Pete. Um, I think this comment is like 10 years old. So uh the comment is to explain how I found the footnotes and stuff messing with my head. I would compare the book to that scene in the Kevin Smith movie mall rats, where this one character spends the entire movie staring at a picture of a bunch of dots, because if you look at the dots long enough, it looks like a sailboat. That's what happened to me with house of leaves. I was reading it for a while and obviously it is just a work of fiction, but I got so invested in trying to keep up with footnotes and this verbose academic rambling that all of a sudden I accidentally found myself half believing what I read. That's fascinating because that description makes me think of something that was said in House of Leaves about if you keep your eye focused on something and don't turn and look, but you can feel something out of the corner of your eye, there's a presence there, you know, off to the side. And if you turn and look, it goes away. 
But if you just keep an awareness of it while you're looking intently in front of you, you have a strong feeling of its presence. That seems very similar to this this comment. Uh, so yeah. maybe, yeah, we focus on the foot, footnotes and we can feel a presence coming up beside us. Yeah, I was sincerely creeped out in the first part of House of Leaves of like, because it starts out saying you shouldn't read this and even says it in German. <laughs> like as an opening <laughs> quote, like this is not for you. Yeah, And I was like, maybe it's not. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you brought that up about keeping it out of the corner of your eye. Because the thing in The Shining that always stuck with me, I talked about this in our, in our discussion, was those hedge animals moving when you're not looking at them. And right. it's the same concept. All right. House of Leaves, you know, you mentioned that it, it tells us this book is not for you. Which book did you think was for you? Which one did you enjoy reading the most? Ooh. I, I enjoyed the reading Hill House while I was reading it, like every second of reading that book. I was like, this is beautiful and vague, but in a, in a good way, <laughs> like vague in an int- intriguing way, not an annoying. Vague in a way that seems skillful. <laughs> yes, right? exactly. Yeah, I think that might be my answer. Yeah, I have to say reading the physical copy of Hill House also lended itself to just, you know, it was warm weather out. So I would sit on my back porch with my coffee or tea and have this like soft paper, like sensory experience of reading Hill House for me was great. And the story was great, like to my like effort in enjoying reading it, you know. Yeah. What about you? You said Hill House you enjoyed the most? Yeah, I think just every page was enjoyable. That was definitely true about that one. Uh, There were others. I still love House of Leaves, House on the Borderland. There are some amazing chapters and passages. But yeah, I think in terms of sheer enjoyment, I think it was probably Haunting of Hill House. Yeah. Um, Did your opinion of any of the books change drastically between reading the book and then our discussion? Yeah, for a couple. So Turn of the Screw... I did not enjoy reading because <laughs> this prose is very stilted and I thought difficult. But our discussion opened it up for me and I, I felt like I could access the story once we started talking about it. Uh, similarly with House on Abigail Lane, I, as I said, I, I thought it was enjoyable enough to read, but in comparing it to everything else we read, I thought we really went some interesting places. What yeah. about you? Definitely Borderland, House on the Borderland. I mean, I was so taken with your description of how t- the, the time represents grief. Like that really opened up the book for me. Yeah, that one's, that one's hard in some ways. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Any book you can say with certainty that you will never read again? I, I can't say that about any of these books. I'm not certain. Yeah. I mean, I have no desire to read it. Like, I feel like, I feel like we've done a good job with these and I can put them away and, but, but yeah. I'm not going to get rid of my coffee. So I'm going to keep my coffees around <laughs> for a while, at least we'll see. <laughs> Is there anyone you definitely will read again? I don't know. I mean, they're not like ho- any sort of horror is not easy. I have to be in the right frame of mind for it. That's right. I don't know. I really don't know. (laughs) What about you? (laughs) I want to reread Haunting of Hill House because I do not feel like I understood it. And then I marked the passages in House on the Borderland that I love. I even spent some time just 
typing them up, which I do sometimes when there's a passage I really like to sort of internalize it. So I'll definitely go back to those. Maybe others. House of Leaves, I do really like a lot. Yeah, maybe others. So one thing we did with this season, and this was your idea, you wanted specifically to have a range of classic, bestseller, young adult, and indie books. So I think we should go through and say which books represented which, and then also tell us if you felt like that paid off. Yeah. So the classic was Turn of the Screw and maybe Haunting of Hill House, right? Yeah. Which may be the wrong identifier, right? Like maybe in future seasons we can revisit what does classic mean? I mean, old <laughs> genre. I, I wanted something genre defining, but mm. they're so diverse that I didn't feel like like the later books were really emulating the earlier books so much. I know that Turn of the Screw has inspired, Turn of the Screw inspired the second season, or I guess I should say The Haunting of Bly Manor. That TV show is great. I would say, don't bother reading the story, watch that TV show, because <laughs> it it's a little bit closer to the story and does so much more with it. And that it was it was fantastic. That's a good distinction, though. Genre defining is one thing. I'm not sure we found that. I think there's value in reading old books. And by old, I mean, you know, 70 years ago, 100 years ago, 150 years ago. I mean, more, if it seems to fit. I think there was a lot of value in talking about how those fit into the history of domestic space. But yes, mm. classic is kind of a, a loaded term. The bestseller was The Shining, right? Mm-hmm. The young adult book was the Goosebumps book, right? Fear Street book, yeah. The, yeah, sorry. I, I have said Goosebumps several times because <laughs> just- Goosebumps and R.L. Stein are just, that's the same thing to me, but it's not. It's R.L. Stein. And then the indie book was House on Abigail Lane, right? Yeah, I mean, the young adult was definitely distinct. It was, it did not go into deep psychological characterizations. It was kind of good at genre defining, though. Certainly good as a start, too. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Abigail Lane. So I, I want to come back to ind- indie books, you know, throughout the seasons. I hope we continue for many seasons to think about, you know, I know indie writers are advised to write a chapter with a tension point or a cliffhanger that makes you want to continue reading and then makes you want to buy the next book and then the next book. And that's perfectly fine because that's how authors make money and I'm in favor of authors getting paid. But uh, I wonder if it changes the framework of the story. Like I know Turn of the Screw was published as a serial in a magazine. Is Henry James able to go back and look at his first chapter and connect it? Is it because he's writing it over many months and writing it to get paid. He definitely needed the money, right? Like, does that change right. the way he, he structures the story? Or like, is there a lack of structure to the story because of that? In indie books, they have to write very quickly and write a lot and usually write a lot in a series. So in one world to, to make money. So yeah, I want to keep considering that. Like probably our shortest book, right, Abigail Lane? Other than the R.L. Stein. I've also heard, and I don't know that this is specific to indie books, but to books that are published more recently, meaning the last five years, there's enormous pressure to make sure that they fit in a clearly defined genre pigeonhole Mm. because that makes the books easy to market, easy to sell. And readers either are treated as or treat themselves as consumers who want a specific consumption item. You know, it's the 
analogy is like the reader is coming to the store. They want a Snickers bar. Do not give them an Almond Joy. So if it is, for example, paranormal romance, it better have all these qualities. Or if it is, you know, a Victorian detective novel, it better have all these qualities. And so I don't know if that's also something to watch out for in more recent books. Again, that doesn't mean anything about how creative they are, right? You can be plenty creative with any sort of restrictions, and there's a good argument restrictions increase creativity, but there may be different pressures at work on books published at different times, right? Right. Or I'm now starting to see a distinction between sort of books published by like working authors. That may not be the right way to say it. Like, I mean, I've I've read plenty of pulp science fiction growing up, whatever I could get my hands on at my library. Mm -hmm. And there's something in common with those books that I read in the 90s and indie published books. There's one world. So so readers form a relationship with characters over several books in several different situations. And they're sort of like in jokes, like fandom in jokes. And I think it's part of the business of selling a lot of books and having like a devoted readership. Whereas I think oftentimes when, when I read a classic, like I read Ro- Moby Dick and I have to mention that because I read Moby <laughs> Dick and I like to say it as often as possible. It is something to be proud of. I've never finished it, even though I loved what I did read, just never quite finished it. Yeah. Well, I had to do it with a book club. I needed that, that outside pressure anyway but reading Moby Dick like it was a lot more enjoyable and it was different than what I expected and that seems to be common when reading a very famous classic book like Moby Dick or War and Peace or Swan's Way by Proust like these are all very big books with a reputation and I find that when I'm with people who have read them after after having them take this like elevated place in literature they're like oh no actually it was funny or actually I related to this and there's always that surprise. It's something like like literature has so much weight to it and it feels like it has to be high art. But indie books and some of the like the the pulp series books written by authors who have to actually earn a living writing books, there's a difference there. I'm seeing a distinction there. Okay. So it sounds like both are enjoyable, but maybe there's either marketing pressures or desire to build an ongoing fan base that might be different? Yes, I find both enjoyable, but I do think that there are plenty of people who don't find both types of books enjoyable. And, you know, I was talking to someone recently who was like, I write military romantic suspense or something like that. It was a very particular genre. And I'm always sort of blown away by like how precise these genres are get. And there are Mm -hmm. people who are like, will not read outside of their favorite genre. And that's, that's fine. But I find it fascinating. (laughs) It is interesting. And how that genre gets formed. Does it change over time? Like you want to read a book. It's it's when you want to read a book and you want to know the pacing and what's going to happen. Like you want to be able to predict the structure of it somehow. Oh, yeah. I mean, I have you know, books like that that I either seek out or reread in certain moods. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's just sure guaranteeing your own enjoyment in a certain way. Did you like trying to bring in these different types of books within the genre? Like, did that add anything? I think the indie book was a really good idea because there is some variety there. To me, the variety that mattered the most was 
over time, mm-hmm. I think, because we had one, I think it was like 1880s, 1890s, 1910s, 1950, 1990, 2015, mm-hmm. I, something that was generally the spread we did. And I, I thought that was a good productive spread. Yeah. That concludes the recap episode and our season one. We are going to take a break before season two, but we do have a bonus episode for Christmas. So be sure to stay subscribed and and keep an eye out for that. Also, be sure to find us on social media so that you can vote in the survey for determining the books that we read in season two, which will be in the solar punk genre. We ask that you support this new podcast by telling your friends and leaving a review on your podcast app. The Book Club Podcast is produced by Carly Jackson and Caroline Gorman. Music and audio editing by Alex Marcus. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.